One of my favorite nonfiction books will come as no surprise to those who know me. It's a book by the British biblical scholar and Anglican bishop N.T. Wright, entitled Surprised by Hope. The subtitle of the book gives you a sense of what's it about. Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. If you've never read it, please make an appointment to see me after today's service. The book aims to remind us Christians of our ultimate hope, that contrary to popular thought, our ultimate hope is not heaven, but resurrection, new creation, or as Wright likes to put it, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Of the 90 books he has written over the course of his life, Wright says he has received more feedback on this one, Surprised by Hope, than all of his other books combined. Clearly an influential work. Except that there is something odd about this feedback, he says. What is odd is that most of the comments and questions that come to him from America about this book are not about the resurrection or new creation or even heaven for that matter. No, they're about a topic he gives scant attention to, the topic of hell. It's quite puzzling and even a bit discouraging, he says. Why does it seem that so many Christians, especially in America, are obsessed with the topic of hell? One time I was sharing with a friend this broader and more satisfying take on the Christian narrative than the one we both grew up with. That the main storyline of the Bible is not where you go when you die, heaven or hell, but rather God's desire to reunite heaven and earth, to one day bring the life of heaven down to earth so that all things are made new, something that he has actually begun in the, in the work and ministry, the person of Jesus. So I remember in energetically describing to him how heaven and earth were created to be interlocking spaces. And that the temple in the Old Testament was to foreshadow what God planned to do for the whole world. And how that now, through Jesus and his church, heaven and earth are rushing together. God is giving us a foretaste of what's to come, his promised new creation. And so look at this scripture here. Listen to what Jesus says over there. See how the story begins in Genesis with creation and, and ends in Revelation with new creation. And so as you can imagine, I was, I was pretty jazzed up explaining this to my friend. But when I finally stopped and took a breath to give my friend a chance to reply, I was completely demoralized when he said, that's nice, but where is hell in all of that? <sighs> that's it? That's your response? And sadly, I've discovered a much too common response. For reasons we won't go into, Christians are overly fascinated with the notion of hell. Like passing a car wreck on the interstate. We know that we might see something gruesome, but we slow down anyway, don't we? Just to get a closer look. The 14th century Italian writer and philosopher Dante is the author actually of numerous works. But mention his name in a crowd and everyone's mind immediately goes to what? Dante, that's right, Dante's Inferno and the nine circles of hell. 
Jonathan Edwards is arguably the greatest theologian America has ever produced, but <laughs> mention his name in a, crowd, uh, in a crowd and everyone's mind immediately goes to what? Sinners in the hands of an angry God in which he describes the horrors of hell in the most vivid and disturbing terms. Some of us even grew up in a tradition in which preachers seem to take great delight in scaring the hell out of their congregants. <laughs> describing with all the fervor that they could muster the details of a literal place where fire that burns forever and the unrighteous burn in torment forever and ever and ever. All of which suggests, let me just venture to say, that many of us in this room, when we heard our gospel reading a moment ago, maybe we got a little distracted. Maybe we got a little distracted because Jesus not only mentioned the word hell three times, he also describes it as a place where their worm never dies, and the fire is never quenched. Ooh, slow down so we can take a closer look. If this is where our minds go, then I'm sorry to say we have missed the point altogether. The strong point, the challenge that Jesus presents us in this passage. Because his challenge doesn't have anything to do with what we normally conceive of as hell and everything to do with how we are to operate in the world as his followers. But before we get to that challenge and unpack it a bit, first things first. If I were to translate this passage, I would never use the word hell. It has way too much baggage to be helpful to modern ears. I would simply use the Greek word itself, letter for letter, and transliterate it into English, and you would get the word Gehenna. You may have heard of this word before, Gehenna, a word that actually comes to us from a Hebrew term that means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, that is an actual place with coordinates on the planet Earth. It's a steep ravine just southwest of Jerusalem where 600 years before Christ, child sacrifice was practiced in defiance to the Lord. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah 7. For the people of Judah have done evil in my sight. They go on building in the valley of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command. Now, thankfully, this detestable practice of child sacrifice is finally abolished by King Josiah in 2 Kings, who then decides to use this God-forsaken valley as Jerusalem's new garbage dump, where rubbish and sometimes even dead bodies are discarded so that the valley of Hinnom becomes a place where, yes, the maggots never seem to die and the fires never seem to go out. It becomes this place of waste and destruction outside the walls of Jerusalem. This is actually where the nation of Israel as a whole was headed in their refusal to follow Jesus as their king, their Messiah. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, Jesus warns them. The path that leads to Gehenna. If, if Israel chooses the way of the Pharisees, the way of nationalism, the way of violence and military uprising against the Roman Empire, well, then Gehenna 
will be their lot. Actually, Jesus predicts this many times throughout his ministry. He says, no one, not one stone will be left upon another, he tells his disciples as they gaze at the beauty of the temple. All of this will be thrown down with fire. And of course, that is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. As the Jews, in their rejection of Jesus, took up arms to overthrow their Roman overlords. That's when Jerusalem is burned down, the temple thrown down, the borders of Gehenna expand to include the whole of Israel. And so with this as the background of our passage, perhaps now we can see how the words of Jesus stand more sharply in the foreground. Perhaps we can now more clearly hear his challenge for us today. The challenge not to give attention to some threat from the outside, but to a threat that comes from within, from within our own hearts. Jesus says, it is better to do violence to yourself than to participate in the violence that will lead you and your fellow Jews to Gehenna. In other words, as followers of Jesus, our focus for change should be on ourselves, on our own hearts, on taking drastic action within, not on taking action against those we deem to be the problem, not on those who are on the the outside. It seems like this is something followers of Jesus are prone to do. Exhibit one, look at the Apostle John in our passage from Mark chapter 9. He seems to interrupt Jesus right in the middle of his teaching about welcoming children, perhaps even while a child is still in Jesus' arms. Teacher, John says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Notice his choice choice of words here. He was not following us. Never mind that he was following Jesus. He wasn't following us. He wasn't a part of our group. He wasn't playing by our rules. We have to do something about this. We have to stop him. Boy, not much has changed, has it, in 2,000 years. As the church today so easily slips into acting like an insecure and scared little child in the face of those who are not like us, those who look and think differently, those outside of our control, (laughs) those who have a certain political slant, maybe those of a certain ethnic background, we have to do something about it. We, we have to stop them. And so what happens? Well, the church becomes a culture warrior, doesn't she? A militant fighting force ready to take aim at those we assume are on the road to hell. Or individual Christians begin pushing aside their own brothers and sisters in Christ because they're the ones causing the problems. They're the ones who threaten our security, our faith. To which Jesus says, you know, you're right, there is a threat. There is most certainly a threat, and I see it coming too. It's just that it's coming not from the outside like you assume, but from within. For if you put a stumbling block before one of the least of these, if if your hand causes you to stumble, if your foot or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, tear it out. For if you don't, the day of destruction is upon us. You see, Jesus is much more worried about the threat from within 
than the threat from without. That's why he uses such strong language here. Clearly hyperbolic and exaggerated language because he's trying to shake us. He's trying to wake us up. This is the path to Gehenna, the place where the casualties of our own scapegoating pile up, the place where the stench of our own sin wafts thick in the air. So be vigilant to do business with the threat from within. Take dramatic action and ruthlessly eliminate the hell from within your own hearts. Because if hell is anywhere, it's first and foremost right here. Think about this. Jesus' closest followers can hear his words about forgiveness and welcome, reconciliation and love, clearly spoken several times over. And yet they still find themselves arguing over who is the greatest. Still they are preventing little children from coming to Jesus. Still they are trying to stop others from doing good in the world. Why? They're not paying attention to the threat from within. <laughs> I feel like this is a conversation I have with my children every day of the week. Stop focusing on what you think your brother or your sister did wrong. Stop obsessing over their own conduct. All you can do is focus on your own behavior, your own attitude. Deal with that. Stop blaming others. Of course, I say this to my children as if I have it all figured out, as if I don't struggle with the same, and yet I do all the time. I mean, we all do. You know, when you you hear a certain scripture read at morning or evening prayer, and you think to yourself, boy, I, I sure hope so-and-so is reading this passage today. Or maybe after you listen to a sermon and you tell your spouse on the way home, I'm going to send a link of that to you-know-who. He, he sure could use that sermon. Yeah, human nature passes the buck for change and places it on the doorsteps of our neighbor never on our own. But Jesus is much more worried about the threat from within than the threat from without. So take whatever drastic action you must, Jesus says, to eliminate the hell from within your own hearts. That's where our attention should be when it comes to the question of hell. Heavenly Father, we confess that we so easily get distracted by lesser things, by lesser questions, by lesser matters, and especially by what we perceive to be the problems of those on the outside. Send us your spirit so that we might give our attention most fully to our own hearts, to confessing our own sins, uh, to bearing fruit of repentance, uh, to ruthlessly eliminating whatever it is uh, that causes us and others to stumble. We want to be a holy people, to bear witness to the heaven and earth reality that is occurring in your church. So have mercy on us, we pray, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.